This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel, and we have to start with the astonishing turn of events south of the border since we all last talked. First, President Trump and his wife test positive after we learned one of his closest aides was infected. Then he was taken to Walter Reed Hospital amid misleading reports on the state of his health. He's received a number of state-of-the-art treatments, including one that is not yet approved. And yesterday he went back to the White House as though he had conquered the disease, removing his mask even though he is still infectious. That return turned into a campaign ad where he told people not to be afraid of the virus, though more than 210,000 Americans have died of it. So will he be able to turn this into a positive, and I don't mean a positive COVID test? Uh, If nothing else, this episode underscores the difference between our two countries, regardless of political affiliation. As a matter of fact, a new Maru Blue poll finds 83% of Canadians agree that Trump's infection will, quote, reinforce to Canadians that our country knows what it's doing when it comes to fighting COVID-19. What do you think? Do you agree with that? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Right now, I'd like to welcome John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner of Fleischmann Hillard High Road, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto, and Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. Hi, everyone. Hi, Hi Libby. Libby. Hi, Libby. Okay. Um, let's go to John first. So uh, what what do you have to say about what's going on in the States now? Jeez, uh, what can you say? <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's, it's mind-boggling. Um, on a daily basis. Uh, first off, I, I'm just I'm glad that the president is doing well. I know that he's not out of the woods yet, and and that his doctors have even stated that he's still in that period of time when they're still monitoring it. But but obviously he has he didn't get hit hard by it initially, which I think is is good. And obviously the care that the president gets is is quite intense, and as we've seen on the TV over the last little while. So I'm glad that he's doing well. But you know I think you know the one the one positive news uh, about this is that <clears throat> I think it's going to give him hopefully a different perspective on this. Uh, and we're hearing that he's going to make it a, a, some sort of a national address at some point today where I'm sure he's going to talk about the fact that, you know, how he's been dealing with it and, and how, he's held, now, how, how he's handled it now that he's been uh, affected with, with COVID. But I think to, to, your, to your monologue, I think, uh, Libby, with respect to Canadians and how they feel about it, um, I think we have been doing it well. I think our country, despite the fact that, you know, our, our cases have gone up and, and we've seen some ebb and flows in that over the course of the last little while, I think we, uh, in huge contrast, have done exceptionally well. Uh, the prime minister has and, and the premiers have. And I think a lot of it is because we were lockstep together with respect to the messaging that we all, every leader, uh, government leader, uh, took, took the advice of their health authorities 
Uh, and I think it's caused us to be a bit more careful, obviously, and more aware of, of this issue. And we've taken it seriously from the very beginning, where I think in the U.S., we saw that mixed message where the president initially didn't, didn't think it was real. The Democrats didn't think it was an issue from the beginning and then changed their, their view. So there's been this huge mixed mash in the U.S., which has caused that, that issue to be very political there, whereas here it's not as political. In fact, it's not political. Uh, Karen, do you think that, uh, you know, when, when we first learned that Trump was sick, we thought this will really hurt his reelection. Uh, do you think he'll be able to turn it around to galvanize his supporters? What do you think? There was a moment in time, Libby, that I thought that could be the case, but the the the, the cracks in his campaign started to emerge when his his political staff were saying one thing, and then he was tweeting out the polar opposite. And so I I believe that there was probably a path to victory out of out of this occurrence, but with the disparate messages that are coming out and with the unclear uh, message about what what he wants to say to the American people, I'm not I'm not really sure. I think he's I think. Uh, that, that there was a moment in time that was available to him that he squandered, unfortunately. And his behavior, you know, he's always been reckless and he's always been erratic and he's always been without empathy. That's nothing new. Um, but it, that, that there is always, I, I think that there was a hope that the nation could look at him now and say, okay, well, here's what I've learned, you know, what Obama used to call the learning moments. But, but he learns nothing. And so it, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to see how um, with such disarray all around him, and now his health in question, how he could possibly pull this out. And listen, a week ago, I, I went full in that he was going to get reelected, and I, I don't see that happening. Um, because, again, his messaging is off. He doesn't know what he wants to say to the American people. To say it's like the flu is just not true. I mean, him telling lies is not new. But, you know, even, you know, no American is going to be convinced it's just like the flu. And so that is... I shouldn't say no. But, I, but, I disagree but, that no American is going to be convinced of what he said. He seems to be uh, yeah. standing there saying, look at me. Right. I got I got past it. I feel better than I have in 20 years. And yeah, it's a risk, but it's worth it. I mean, I don't know. Well, um, and most developed, and then I'll hand it over to Charles, who I know has some comments on the Yes, matter, I was saving Charles you know, for last in, on this one. In, in most developed democratic nations that are part of the, you know, the group of, of seven, group of 20, they would say, okay, here's actually a moment where we realize the value of universal health care, because here's a man at high risk who got this contagious disease, who could have been really suffered badly, but because he had access to great medical care, he survived it. That could be the moment for the country to rally around universal health care. But, you know, he'd have to lead that charge. He's not about to. And it's just, for me, still quite shocking that the country doesn't want that for its people, given that that's probably one of the key components to being able to manage this this virus. Okay. Uh, Charles. <laughs> well, it's no wonder he feels great. I mean, he's on steroids. Exactly. Part yeah. of, part of I, I have to say that those steroids, uh, I, I took them uh, when I was on chemotherapy. I think it would be day three that they, they put you on those steroids to try to, you know, stabilize you. And uh, I remember this was when I had breast cancer. It was quite a long time ago. And, and uh, I would, you know, uh, get up and, and go play tennis, which was good. I didn't have anything infectious. But, you know, he can be jacked up on steroids. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it apparently leads to feelings of invincibility and un- instability. And <laughs> that's exactly what this Sounds president needs, let me tell you. Um, so 
the bottom line is it, it's been a fiasco to watch. I mean, from his debate performance where he interrupted moderator and Joe Biden 145 times to uh, actually contracting COVID after foolishly disregarding all of the norms with regards to social distancing and exposed presumably dozens and dozens of people. I mean, the West Wing of the White House right now is empty because of the number of people who've contracted COVID, presumably through their interactions with the president. But the, the real, the, the, where the rubber really hits the road is what does this mean for the election? And the election will be decided by a relatively small number of people, some suggest like hundreds of thousands, residing in the 12 battleground states. And the names will be familiar, Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio, New Hampshire, Arizona. Donald Trump won 10 of 12 of those states in 2016. Um, at the moment, Joe Biden leads, and in a lot of cases, convincingly in 11 of those 12 states. So there's still two presidential debates to go. There's still the vice presidential debate tomorrow. But it's, it's looking like the pathways that Trump has to victory are becoming increasingly narrow. And uh, we'll just have to see what happens. The other thing I would say about Trump's diagnosis of COVID, and if you saw him standing at the top of the portico just trying to catch his breath after climbing those stairs last night, I mean, it was it was a bit scary. Herman Cain, who is the multimillionaire founder of Godfather's, Godfather's Pizza in the States, he attended a Trump indoor Trump rally in Tulsa in late July, was diagnosed with COVID in early August, and was dead four weeks later, despite repeatedly saying he was getting better and his doctors were encouraged. This disease is wickedly unpredictable, and Donald Trump is a grab bag of underlying conditions. Well, we don't really know. I mean, you have to say that even at the, you know, in normal times, the guy really has a lot of stamina for somebody for an obese 74 year old. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, there's, there's no question about that. But, uh, it's, you know, to me, I'm wondering, do, does his base get energized by this? I mean, it's, it's really something to watch and is he i mean he did that uh that kind of drive by where he endangered the secret service members who had to drive him is he going to insist that his staffers come back to work even though they may be infectious uh john do you have a view um yeah i i don't know i i, I still think that you know to, to you can't predict what's going to happen with uh with donald trump when it comes to the election although i do agree that his path to victory is seems less Less likely. I, I, I was like, I'm with Karen that maybe a week or two ago, or, or prior to the debate and prior to him catching COVID, I thought that he still had a very good chance of of winning this. Uh, and, and polls were a lot tighter. Uh, national polls, which don't really mean a lot in the U.S., but the, 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 were certainly narrower than they are now. But I do think that the mis, the mixed messaging, especially with him in the hospital, where his the team of doctors were saying one thing and then being contradicted by his chief of staff, that was painful. And I think even Fox News was criticizing the uh, the White House and how they handled the messaging. And you know, when they criticize the president, something something's gone wrong. Um, but but nonetheless, I do think though that you know there's still time to go. And and you know there was we're reminded by the U.S. Uh, cable networks that that at this time you know he was behind 11 points to uh, to Hillary Clinton uh, at, at national polls. So I do think that something can happen. I I, I do think that he now realizes 
that he's falling behind. I don't think he ever believed that he was behind, but now I think he is realizing, and he's trying to use COVID now uh, and the fact that he was affected in some way as a campaign political issue more so than he has been in the past, which is why I think there's going to be this national address. I think his uh, his uh, signs of of invincibility, where he came out walking out of the out of the Walter Reed Hospital and and uh, you know gave the thumbs up and then sort of addressed uh, people, or at least get, kind of gave that statuesque. Uh, a, a photo op on on top of on top of the second floor of the White House. All of that is to show that that he beat this, that he is strong. Uh, it's more of a message to his base, to your point, Libby, uh, than anything else, because I think his base is still there. Like he has not lost his base uh, at all, but he can't win this next election with his base alone. Uh, and and that's the key thing that I think is going to hurt him, as, as Charles alluded to, with respect to some of those battleground states uh, where he's losing them. He needs to win those. And those battleground states are not only his base support, but he's got to get a lot of those swing votes and, and some of the independents that, uh, that went with him in 2016 uh, that seem to be abandoning him now. Um, interesting. Uh, one of the thoughts is that the super spreader event was that uh, party that the announcement of the nomination of the Supreme Court Judge Amy, Amy Coney Barrett to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I guess now there's a question, uh, you know, they, they, the Republicans were determined to move ahead and get her confirmed before the election. And now with some senators sick, there, there are questions about that, though I guess, you know, if they're well enough after their quarantine period, it's uh, still before the election. Karen, uh, and, and do you think that has an effect on public opinion? You know, we keep seeing those pictures where everybody's hugging and, yeah. and uh, not sitting very far and no masks or anything. Yeah, it's hard to say because, you know, again, if, if, if they were, um, if they're Trump supporters and believers and deniers, then the fact that this this event took place with hugging and kissing and all that. You probably didn't phase anybody one way or the other. And the fact that they've contracted the disease, if they're inclined to believe that it's not that serious, then then they're probably not swayed either way. And my guess is that the Republican Party will do everything in its power to confirm the, the new Supreme Court uh, jurist. Is it jurist? Well, she judge, yeah, yeah she's, that's she's a jurist. Yeah, a jurist, because this is their moment in time, and if they don't do this now, then they may not have this chance, and they would be willing to sacrifice the election to get this this jurist named. Okay, uh, Charles, do you agree? Oh, yeah, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the final confirmation vote has to be in person. It is possible that one or two of them could conceivably just be so incapacitated that they're they're not able to attend the vote. But the Republicans understand that they need to get this done for their base. Um, and this will be, ironically, one of the crowning achievements of Trump's presidency, even if it does nothing for his re-election chances. In fact, once they have that Supreme Court justice um, nominated officially by the Senate, uh, the impetus for people to go out and vote for Donald Trump will actually go down. That, that could very well be his last contribution to the Republican cause. Mm-hmm. The bigger issue, though, is what happens on Election Day if Trump continues with the motif that this is all rigged and I'm not accepting the results and we're not accepting mail-in ballots and I'm the winner here and I'm the winner here and I'm claiming victory now. That is That has the makings of a constitutional crisis and that'll be a big moment for Republicans 
because Republicans over and over again have been accused of standing by Trump even when he's been at his craziest, most obscene. Uh, but there will come a breaking point. There will come a point where they will have to stand up and say, no, have what, what the voters have determined is actually uh, the, the, the uh, primacy here. Okay. And, well, and that would be the moment they abandon Trump, I suspect. I'm wondering if in his interview of that judge, Amy Coney Barrett, if he asked her whether uh, she would recuse herself if the election came down to the Supreme Court deciding. They asked her that. Uh, In fact, somebody, somebody, uh, the media asked her that, and she actually said, no, she would not recuse herself. Okay, well, there you go. And and on the footnote on that, I mean, if the Republicans win the House, the Senate, and they have the Supreme Court, does the presidency matter as much? Don't know. Of course it does, but if they control every other lever, that might be enough of a victory. Okay, uh, I'm going to take a call from Lee in Malton. Hi, Lee. Hello, are you there, Lee? Hello. Hello, you're on the air. Go ahead. Yes, uh, is this Dizzy or Gizzy? Is it David or D-R-Z? I'm not sure what you're asking. Thanks for your call. Uh, Don't think anybody here is Dizzy. Okay, uh, let us move along to some happenings here in Canada. So uh, we have a new leader of the Green Party. She is uh, the first black woman to lead a big federal party. She's also Jewish. How much of a breakthrough is this, Karen? I think it's fantastic. And, uh, you know, what makes it more so is that, um, you know, she's broken down so many barriers and uh, such a, I think it will re-energize the Green Party in such a fabulous way. And she's so accomplished and uh, so um, committed to the cause. I think it's really a wonderful thing, Uh, not just for the Green Party, but I think for every party, because, you know, no offense, guys, but there's a lot of a lot of white guys up there, <laughs> and so it's nice to see alongside, um, you know, the NDP leader that, that we we have more diversity. Well, it, it, it's interesting. I'm looking forward. I'm going to speak to her tomorrow for our weekend show. So far, she she doesn't come across like a politician. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's going to change or not. John, what's your take on her? I think she's very impressive. I, I got to tell you, I. Uh was uh, was uh, watching the um, uh, the the news coverage of, of the leadership race and then of course her her victory speech afterwards I thought she really handled herself well uh, I think you know sort of a sort of black Jewish woman uh, to lead a federal party I think is tremendous and, and a great breakthrough for uh, for us and uh, just in Canada in general but certainly for the Green Party I think she's going to add some some excitement I think Elizabeth May who did a, a tremendous amount for the Green Party over her career without a doubt. Um, was just getting a bit stale with respect to uh, to the issues there. So I think having a leadership race, having somebody of uh, of Ms. Paul's um, credentials and, and, and just uh, outreach and, and look, I think is going to be good for the Green Party. I think her biggest challenge, though, uh, remains getting a seat. And that is not easy for uh, for the Green Party. And certainly a Green Party who's running in Toronto Centre, as uh, Charles will know, uh, that is a very, very safe liberal seat. And, and as a conservative, I know that um, any riding in Toronto is a conservative. And I ran in the Tobago Lakeshore, which is more of a swing riding. But certainly in Toronto, Toronto Centre, it is, it is a tough call for anybody that is not a liberal. Uh, and the fact that, that they've made some outreaches to the NDP and, and the liberals and the conservatives to, uh, to uh, adhere to or at least um, obey a, an old rule, which is the leader's rule, which is to say that if a, 
a leader get needs a seat that everybody would stand down so that he or she can get a seat. Well, that was long gone, and no one's ever going to do that. But there is a case to be made, given the fact that the Green Party did allow uh, Jagmeet Singh to run in his riding unopposed, uh, that they would they would try to do that in Toronto Centre. But even if they did, even if the NDP stood down, there's a, there's a very slim chance that Ms. Uh, Ms. Paul can get, a, can get elected in that riding. So she'd have to look elsewhere. That is uh, uh, former broadcasting call, um, uh, Marcy Ian. It, does she have the nomination, or is she she's looking for the Liberal nomination? In no, she has the nomination, and um, and I agree with John that it'll be a real surprise if the Liberals aren't successful uh, on by election day, which I believe is October twenty sixth. Well, and, um, and Marcy is also a, a black woman, and uh, she's also very smart, and she would be very well known to people because of years on television. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. And the, the other issue for the new NDP, or rather the new Green Party leader, is that that party really belongs to Elizabeth May. Um, and uh, it, it's interesting that on the night the new leader was chosen, it was Elizabeth May who got most of the press. Um, and <laughs> well, nobody ever heard of anyone else. Yeah, uh, to yeah, be honest. True. And the other challenge facing the Green Party is that Elizabeth May was able, uh, to her credit, to establish something of a regional beach hold in um, British Columbia. And whether the new leader can do that is very much an open question. So this may be a play for not necessarily more seats, but more votes, which is to say that the Green Party could do better nationally, that she may appeal more directly to NDP voters, but that won't necessarily translate into seats. And so the next election will be very telling in terms of how well the Green Party can be expected to do going forward. Well, I mean, Jagmeet Singh, even though he's from here, uh, he did the sensible thing and ran in BC. I mean, you would have thought that Enemy Paul should just run in BC, where uh, the Green Party uh, is, uh, you know, has more support. Yeah, I would. I would have thought so. No, no, sorry, go ahead, Charles. <clears throat> no one, no one's in a hurry to give up their seat, especially party MP. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so. And, and I hear John on the leader's rule. In fact, there's a very famous by-election in 1942. I'm sorry to do this to people, but where um, Arthur Meehan had become leader of the Conservative Party. Or, I'm sorry, it was Bracken. And uh, there was a by-election in the old riding of York South, and the Liberals decided not to run there. And uh, lo and behold, the old CCF, the precursor of the NDP, uh, won the riding and uh, effectively ended Bracken's leadership of the Federal Conservative Party. So strange things happen in by-elections involving new leaders. Mm-hmm. Libby, I would say, too, though, just with respect to the parachuting issue, in, in that <clears throat> this Paul made such a, a compelling case uh, in her victory speech about how you know, the fact that the Liberals have parachuted candidates into uh, into Toronto Centre for the last, I don't know how many years she was saying, uh, and that they they win and then they sort of abandon the writing. She made a very compelling case about how she was born in the writing, her mother uh, worked in the writing, and there was a bit of a, a bit of a generational attachment to the writing, and that, you know, she made a, such a big issue about parachuting in the Liberals parachuting into the riding uh, of Toronto Centre, that her now parachuting into another riding can cause a bit of a challenge for her from a messaging perspective. 
Mm, I don't know. I, I, w- I would have to say, uh, you know, thank you for, for enlightening me on that note. I don't think, you know, the great mass of public would, A, know about that. <laughs> yeah. And and like I said, she doesn't come across like a politician, so but, maybe she'll learn. Well, on that, she's going to have to start being a politician, right? Because yeah. all of it is, about getting elected is you need your grassroots support to get your vote out. You need a message that resonates. So there's, um, it's nice, you know, that the... the, the, the the candor and straightforwardness is always refreshing, of course, but, you know, there's other parts of being a politician that are absolutely necessary to get elected. Okay. Um, we are, I would say, starting uh, to run out of time. Um, you know, in my next segment coming up, we're going to talk about this growing split, it looks like, between the province and the city about how to go forward in stage two. Uh, what do you think going for the next week, uh, the biggest challenge for the provinces, John? Well, for the province, I think it, it's still the, 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 the pressures of the testing and, and the, they're trying to sort of get a grapple or a handle on, on the testing, as, as we've seen over the course of the last number of days. I think the fact that we had such a huge number of folks wanting to test, get themselves tested, it was, was great, but obviously it's caused a backlog. You know, the government, the, the province is now trying to deal with that backlog. Um, but I also think, too, that the challenge of, of keeping businesses open, but yet, you know, sort of maintaining the the fact that the numbers are rising and the fact that the Toronto City, the, the Toronto Health Authority uh, wants uh, wants restaurants and, and other areas to be shut down, like in stage two, I think the, the biggest challenge facing the Premier is, is the balance between trying to keep businesses and the economy going whilst still trying to make sure that the numbers are under control. Mm-hmm. Charles? It's a tough one for the premier because essentially what the city's advocating is that restaurants and bars return to stage two, which would suggest they're only available for takeout and delivery. And there are a lot of connections being drawn between uh, indoor dining and uh, the rise in the number of COVID cases. So, you know, a partnership that has worked very well between the city and the province, and in fact, you could extend it to the federal government, is really now starting to show some signs of cracks. And and I, I get the premier's issue um, in really not wanting to tell uh, thousands of Torontonians, sorry, you you can't go on with your job. But the the whole issue of tracking and tracing is is as problematic, which is the city's overwhelmed at the moment. I mean, it cannot deal with the backlog, but can't deal with the lineups, and they're just not doing the tracing that's necessary to get a handle on this disease. Well, yeah, they stopped doing the tracing, which is scary. Mm -hmm. And uh, apparently, Tests are going to California, but uh, at, on the website, you know, I've heard from people that they can't even get into the website to see if their results are there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah I, in, okay. in fact, my daughter was tested for COVID yesterday. Oh, really? How come? Yeah. Well, my son came down with uh, a cough and a fever last Wednesday, got his COVID test Friday. We got our test. Uh, he got his test back negative on Sunday. Two days, uh, wow. But, yeah, it was less than 48 hours. My daughter um, is, is quite sick, still home from school. So we had her tested yesterday, and we were having trouble accessing the website and getting her registered so that we can access her results, although we have overcome that. You have overcome that? Because I, yes. I was thinking, you know, why hasn't uh, it been reported that that website is crashed among all the other problems they're having? Oh, it's a mess. It's a mess, to be sure. 
Well, Libby, I, if I, I can just mention, I, I, I really want to just do a quick shout out to the Right Honorable John Napier Turner. Oh. Our funeral service was held this morning, and he was a tremendous influence on, on my life as a, as a young liberal and so many young liberals who've gone on to be members of parliament, ministers, um, and public servants. So I just, I really wanted to get that in. So thank you. And and I think beyond liberals, I remember him um, uh, giving speeches, including at our conference, Idea City, and he was just so inspiring to everyone there on the issue of of public service. I I can't say enough about it, but thank you so much. Amazing life, well lived. Um, Amazing, amazing stuff. And uh, Karen, I'm going to give you the last word now. Oh, thanks, Libby. I think um, I think there's all of the challenges that have been um, exposed. I, I think that if if the decision of public health is that they can't keep up with the tracing, then you know there might be a need to do what New York is doing and add another dimension when you go get your COVID test about where you live and just put your postal code in, because New York City is being a bit more targeted so that certain areas where postal codes are experiencing high rates of COVID, those areas are being shut down um, as opposed to a blanket shutdown for the city. And so I think those are the kinds of things that were, um, are worth exploring because Toronto's a big city. And, you know, again, it's, um, you know, if they go back to phase two, of course, Friday Village will be impacted and we will be closed. So, of course, I have a different perspective on it and a vested interest in finding a more targeted solution that's going to help actually stop the spread of COVID as opposed to a blanket solution that has a significant impact. Okay, well, uh, we will have to uh, explore that further as this develops. In the meantime, I wish everybody well. Charles, I, I hope your kids feel better soon and they, mm. they come back negative and, and certainly that nobody else in the family gets sick. And uh, John, and thanks everybody and please stay safe and have a, a great, uh, I guess, socially distanced Thanksgiving. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. All the best, everyone. Okay. Bye. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.